Summer driving is here, and so are the red-hot deals on the best tire brands at Dobbs. Money saver June deals on new sets of Goodyear, Cooper, Continental, Michelin, and Pirelli tires. Click on GoToDobbs.com to find your next set of tires today. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carricker. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. It's 902. Time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. And it was a thrill to get the news on Friday that the Cardinals had added John Tudor to the Cardinal Hall of Fame by a vote of Cardinal fans. John and Tommy Herr were elected. Bill White also named to the Hall of Fame, and they will be inducted soon. We don't have an official date for that. But John Tudor is with Michelle Smallman and Randy Carricker now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. John, great to have you with us, and congratulations. Oh, thanks. Nice to be here. How are you guys doing? Doing well. John, can you take us through what that moment was like when you got the phone call and you got the news that you were, in fact, elected into the Cardinals Hall of Fame? Uh, no, very exciting. I got a call from uh, Mr. DeWitt, and um, it, it was, you know, I told a couple people it was funny because I almost didn't answer it because it came from, a, you know, a line that didn't have a name on it or anything. And I usually don't answer those, but circumstances being what they were at the time, I said, oh, I better answer this just for the heck of it. And, um, so I got a chance to talk to Mr. DeWitt for a little while, and he kind of told me what was going on, and uh, and uh, it was it was uh, it was very exciting. I, I'm I'm very uh, honored and uh, very grateful for the uh, uh, St. Louis fans. John, how much do you know about this Cardinal Hall of Fame? I, I know that they give you an idea, but has has it been described to you how how cool it is over at Bush Stadium? I've had people tell me I have I haven't witnessed it, uh, and, and so I don't really know. Um, but um, I, I know what people are telling me. It's a, uh, it's pretty special, and um, that uh, that it, it it should be a lot of fun. John, you mentioned the fans. What does it mean for you to know that even with such a rich history that the Cardinals organization has, that the fans said, "Hey, we want to make sure that John Tudor is represented in the Cardinals Hall of Fame," and they cast their vote for you. Like I said, very special. Cardinal fans are uh, are, are a special breed, and uh, very very. You know, not only not only baseball fans, but just you know the, the hockey uh, hockey fans, and um, I'm sure the soccer guys people will like that too at some point. But um, it, uh, it it's definitely special to get voted in by the fans. There's no doubt about that. And it's you know especially as far back as I go, you know to uh, to still be able to get enough votes to um, to get in, even though I haven't been there for you know over 30 years. The new Cardinal Hall of Famer, John Tudor, is with us on 101 ESPN. And, John, the the first year that I covered the Cardinals every day, every single home game, was 1985 when you got here. And it was clear to me very quickly how fun that team was. You had been in Boston. You came from Pittsburgh the year before. How much fun for you was being on that team? Oh, it was a blast. I mean, it was a, it was a good team. It was a, it was a really, really good group of guys. Everybody got along. Everybody, I think, legitimately liked each other, uh, and, and that's 
And that's really kind of saying something when you're putting 25 to 30 guys over the course of a year together in, in a small confined space. Uh, you know, sometimes things happen, but we, we've never had any issues. It was, I, uh, I've said before, I can remember sitting in, in the visitors dugout when I was with Pittsburgh in, in 1984 and saying, wow, what, wouldn't it be fun to play here? Not only, uh, for this team with this defense, uh, but in, in front of these, uh, in front of the sea of red that, that are Cardinal fans. And that defense meshed perfectly with your style of pitching, didn't it? Yeah, it did. That The defense in the ballpark and the, and the team speed, you know, there were very few holes uh, on that turf uh, back in those days with, uh, you know, with Vince and Willie and Andy Van Slyke roaming the outfield and Terry Pendleton, Ozzy, Tommy Hearn, Jack Clark in the infield. It was, it, was a, it was a pretty secure place to give up a ground ball or a fly ball. John, you talk about all the amazing players that you had surrounding you on that team. Is that something that you realized in the moment? I know that now you can look back and and even in the Cardinals Hall of Fame, you look around and so many members of that team are going to be there with you at some point, currently wearing red jackets or in the future. But in the moment, is that something that you really recognize what a special team that this would be in Cardinals history? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think you look at I don't think you any player looks at a team as as far as history goes. I uh, think you look at it and you compare teams to teams you've played for and and uh, and places that you've played. And that's what made St. Louis such a special place. Like I said, I noticed it the year before when I was in Pittsburgh. We'd had such a horrendous year in Pittsburgh the year before. And and uh, and it was it was uh, it was so much fun to come to St. Louis with that big ballpark and and, uh, and know that ball, ball gets hit. It's pretty much going to get caught or something, you know, so, and, uh, that was, so it, for somebody like me who, who at that point in my career was not a power pitcher anymore. Um, uh, it was, it was definitely a, a great place to, to be. John Tudor with us on 101 ESPN. And John, you were pretty steadfast, especially in your last year when we would come up to you after games and you'd reach a milestone or you had, you'd done something in Cardinal history and you'd say, that's something that I'll talk about after I retire. You were always so zoned in on that day's game. But here we are 30 years later. What are the things that you accomplished as a pitcher that you're most proud of? Uh, you know, it, it, I, I, first of all, I find it hard to believe that I would have told you I would have talked about this after I retired, because that's, <laughs> no, you just not something that, that's probably not something I said at the time either. <laughs> but um, you know, for, for, for me, I think that the important thing, and, and really, what should the important thing for any any player, pitcher, or whatever, is to know that you you took the ball when they offered it to you, and you went out there and you gave it your best effort. You know, I've said, I said you're going to get my best effort every time I go out there. It's not always going to be good. But it's going to be it's going to be my best that particular day and and um, and and I and I think I did that and uh, and I and I certainly strived to do that and you know I, I think that's really when you talk to young kids when I talk to young players when you know from and like when I've coached over the years I just I tell them you you got a couple of things you can control your attitude and your effort and if you control those two things and you and you and you put your head on the pillow that night and know that the effort you gave that day was your best, and there's really nothing more you can do. And you took the, especially in 85, took the ball every day, 275 innings, and you were brilliant. Was that the perfect storm pitching-wise for John Tudor that season? Oh, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That, you know, I just, I, I, I got on a roll with, with a team that was on a roll. And, uh, and and everything just kind of fell into place right up to the end. And, um 
And like I said, for, for somebody like me who threw, I threw strikes, you know, I, I tried to work fast, tried to throw the ball to play, tried to put the ball in play, give those guys out there a chance to play. And I've said it a million times, shame on me if I didn't make hitters put the ball in play and let those guys play because they certainly were something to watch when they were playing. John, you mentioned that you've done some coaching, and we were talking to Tommy Herr about this yesterday. It's amazing from that group. Every member of the starting eight has coached at some level. Level Ozzy has done the spring training thing, but everybody else has had a job coaching. You have done it. Bob Forsh did it. Uh, Danny Cox did it. A lot of guys from that team, more than half the roster, wound up coaching or teaching. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I think, I, I think first of all, uh, when, you, when you've reached that level of play, uh, you, you've pretty much become a student of the game because the difference between the guys that reach that level of play and the guys that really the majority of the guys that don't is, is just the ability to learn, the ability to, to make adjustments and, and uh, throughout the course of a game. And, and, and those, are, those are kind of teachable things. And uh, I, I think just the love of the game. You know, we enjoyed being around the game, being around uh, being around the locker room and and, uh, and and I've always enjoyed working with with uh, younger players and uh, it's 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 fun it's challenging and it's and it's frustrating all at the same uh, all at the same time. John, we know that if and when baseball resumes, that 2020 is not going to be a normal season. There's not going to be fans in the stands. But at some point, you will get the moment at Bush Stadium on an opening day when you're there on the field with all of the other members of the Hall of Fame with the red jackets on and the Clydesdales and the fans in the stands. And I know while it's not something that we have a, a tangible date for yet, is that something or a moment that you have kind of thought about, about what that will actually feel like when you're in that environment and you get that that day with all of these amazing Cardinals legends, including your yourself no it's really not i haven't really thought about it i mean you know uh, i've been asked on a couple of occasions you know what's it going to be like what do you, what do you what's going to be going through your head at that time and and my only answer to that was i have no clue you know uh i i'm not an overly emotional person uh so i i don't i don't know how i react in that moment it will be uh as i've said it'll be a new experience for me and uh and one that i'm looking forward to uh but also dreading you know, because I'm not a big uh, up in front of a whole bunch of people trying to say something type of person, and and uh, so that that moment scares me a little bit. The rest of it doesn't, but that particular moment does. Uh, but uh, I, I don't I don't have any idea how I'll react. I'm you know, like I said, it's a, it's a it's a prestigious group. This you know, obviously great cardinal tradition, great players in cardinal history, and just to be mentioned uh with uh you know with the gibsons and the brocks and the kurt floods and those and those guys it's um it, it's a, it's special finally john what's it mean to you to be going into the cardinal hall of fame with tom her well that's great i mean when i found i was back in st louis for that major league baseball birds of a something or other mm-hmm. and um tommy was there and i know he and whitey were talking and whitey was had mentioned to him about you know what he was going to try and get him try and get him on the ballot and I, I didn't think it would be I didn't know it was going to be this year but when I saw his name on it I I, I, I had two thoughts I said oh that kind of hurts my chances to get in because Tommy was a great player and a very popular player so that's got to take some votes away <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it's also but it's also a great uh, a great moment for um, you know as they say a couple of whiteys guys to get in which is which is nice because that was a that really was a good team and 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 I've heard it said before and it's true that if if we had won those last couple of games 
that team would be looked at a lot differently in Cardinal history. But it uh, wasn't to be. And uh, but there were still great teams, and they were and they were fun teams to watch. They you know, were it was it was it, you know, it was baseball at a different at a different speed and a different tempo than uh, than I think people were used to watching. Yeah, it, it was as good as it got, and you were as good as it got in Cardinal history. John Tudor, thanks so much for the time. Congratulations, and we can't wait to see you here on Induction Day. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for the call, and thanks for the opportunity to speak. Right. Have a wonderful day. That, Take care. Thanks. That's John Tudor with us on 101 ESPN. In modern history, John Tudor's 705 winning percentage is the best. In modern history, his 2.52 ERA is the best. I mentioned yesterday the Cardinals were, uh, I think it was 86 and 42 in the games that he started. The hundred is that uh, does that equal 128? Yes, 86 and 42 in the games that he started as a member of the Cardinals. He was phenomenal and. Like he said, he utilized that defense, and the defense was spectacular. And his style, he wasn't a strikeout guy, but his style was perfect for that team. Yeah, imagine taking them out knowing the defense that you have behind you, right? Right, yeah. Just throw it over the plate. Yep. Make the other team hit it. And it, we didn't. he didn't say, I'll talk to you about that. He said, that's something I'll think about <laughs> after I retire. So he said, he's right. He would have never said, I'll talk to you after I retire, because he wouldn't have. He was. Uh, he, he had a tendency to be a little bit icy when he was a player uh, to the media. And I told the story yesterday about how during a World Series, he somebody asked a stupid question. And so you've got your lanyard around the neck, and he's got the... Uh, he grabbed somebody's credential from out of town. It was a national guy. He said, what do you need to get one of these, a driver's license? So, uh, yeah, he, he had a tit... Uh, he, he had a tendency to be rough on the media. What was the media member's reaction to that? Uh, just turned bright red. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, what do you do? So, congratulations to John Tudor, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get this induction in this summer. We don't know, but the Cardinals obviously are being responsible, and they want to do the right thing by everybody. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up on 101 ESPN, you're killing me, Smalls. Stick around. What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. All right, Michelle, what do you got for us? You're killing me, Small. Yes. Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it. Randy, we talked a lot about Blake Snell and the comments that he made on Twitch about how he's not willing to play unless he's getting all of his money. He wants his money. And he got a lot of backlash from a lot of people for making those comments. Bryce Harper was on his side, but really a lot of people were upset that he, on a public forum like Twitch, would be talking like this. And he said, you know what? I don't care what you guys think. I'm switching my agencies. And guess who he is partnering up with, Randy? Probably somebody who's just going to be totally on board with what owners are thinking and has a great relationship <laughs> with all the owners, I would think. Yeah. Or Scott Boris. <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect for him. Don't you think for a guy yep. who says, I want all my money, give me yep. my money, that Scott Boris is the first guy on the phone saying, you want all your money? Come over here, buddy. I got you. Yeah. So uh, we can count on when Blake Snell's contract is up in three or four years and he becomes a free agent. We can count on him signing in March with somebody for a year. You're killing me, Smalls. Another thing that players have been talking about is 
a lot of the health and safety guidelines that MLB has presented to them. And, you know, we talked about it with Andy Van Slyke, and he said, players not spitting, players not using seeds. This is not going to happen. This is something that's ingrained in them. It's not going to fly with players. Well, Charlie Blackman was talking about this, Rocky's outfielder. He uh, was having a conversation and said, wait, what about spitting? I'm 100% going to spit. That's ingrained in my playing the game, whether or not I'm dipping or chewing gum, I'm still going to spit. I have to occupy my mind. It's like putting things on autopilot. You see with Hunter Pence where he would constantly be adjusting his uniform. I don't have this idle time where my consciousness wanders. I fill my time with thought processes that are like a cruise control. I kind of don't understand why ownership and Rob Manfred would come up with that rule because it is inherent in baseball players from the time they're watching big leaguers when they're five they start spitting Mm -hmm. and that is just a behavior that is not going to be changed i i guess i understand because the experts are saying well you shouldn't be spitting but if charlie blackman is in right field spitting it's not going to make a difference to anybody else maybe if the next right fielder dives and charlie blackman's positive but what what's likelihood of that if guys are getting tested two or three times a week i think that was just a it's another cya move by the owners. Sure. And yeah, they're looking at the environment that they need to construct to make sure the players are safe and healthy. And if they're getting information from top medical officials that say, hey, saliva is a way that COVID is spread. They're going to say, hey, no spitting. We need to avoid all of these things. So it's yes, it's them protecting themselves. But for a guy like Charlie Blackman to go to Sports Illustrated and say, I'm 100% going to ignore that. I'm not going to do that. You know, if he's saying it on that platform, that it's something that players are discussing amongst themselves privately and that if and when baseball does come back, if this is a rule that's enacted, they're not going to be punished for it. There's going to be no consequences for players spitting out there. So I'm sure there's a ton of players that are going to just blatantly ignore this. 100% 100% of the players. 100% of the yeah. players and 100% of the time. By the way, I don't think that would be a bad idea for our management to suggest with the fast lane either because we walk in here and we see their spit cups and we know that they're spitting. I think it would be a good idea. Wait, really? I'm looking around. I don't see. I have to clean them up early. Oh. kind of disgusting. Those, those guys are spitters. Yeah. Who's, who is, I don't even know how to phrase well, this. The worst is the, the former player, of course. Mm-hmm. Biggest spitter in the group. Yep. So, bad news. I can't see Ranji liking that. No, he's kind of a uh, health freak. <laughs> kind of a kind of a clean guy. Yeah, he he doesn't, but then he goes and spits himself. <laughs> I also wondered too if, if guys are saying we're not spitting, how quickly that evolves into and I'm also t- uh, spitting seeds and we also have tobacco like all of these things that you're saying we're not going to do. If I'm going to go out here and spit on the field, I'm going to be spitting seeds. Absolutely they are. And if you have a a huge wad of big league chew in your mouth, you're going to have to spit. You're exactly right. They're going to go out there with seeds. They're going to go out there with their gum, like Blackman said, even if he's got his chew. How can you have chew? And they suggest that players don't chew tobacco, but there's no rule hard and fast against it. How can you chew tobacco and not spit? Then you swallow and you throw up. I mean, we've all seen the sandlot. We know what happens there. Yeah, right. Bad, bad play.
You're killing me, Small. All right, finally, Randy, one of the things we talked about last week was that there was rumblings that XFL, our guest, former XFL owner, Vince McMahon, uh, was going to attempt to buy back the league. There was, you know, a lot of eye emojis on social media saying, what is Vince McMahon up to here? What is the deal? Could the XFL have a pulse? Well, in a court filing, Vince McMahon called accusations that he was secretly maneuvering to use Chapter 11 as an avenue to cheaply retain the XFL, quote, inflammatory and, quote, unsubstantiated. It probably wasn't. It wasn't unsubstantiated until word got out, and it is a pretty bad look if you are going to go into bankruptcy and leave all these people hanging with all these debts that you have to them, and then you're going to try to come back and buy the league for pennies on the dollar. So I get that, but I was also surprised, Michelle, to see that 20 people have made bids already for the XFL's assets. And a lot of it is intellectual property, I understand that. But a lot of it is material things like helmets and jerseys and things like that. And obviously, Vince McMahon had some idea. If he's going to tell his people to go reinstate the leases Mm -hmm. in St. Louis and Seattle, he was at least thinking about it, wasn't he? Without a doubt. And I wonder if these... 20 potential purchasers, if any of them have a relationship, perhaps, with Vince McMahon or or some sort of a business agreement with him. And yeah, those 20 potential purchasers that you mentioned, they've signed non-disclosure agreements to gain access to confidential company data. And an additional six potential purchasers are in the process of filing similar agreements. So there are some people interested in this. This leads me to believe that the XFL is going to come back. There, there are clearly people out there that think that it can work. Thank you for that, Colin. And one more time. Cuckoo! Yes. Yeah. I missed that. And why wouldn't you? And it was obviously in the stages of infancy, but you had amazing partnerships with the network that had early returns on ratings positive. You had markets like St. Louis and Seattle that knew what they were doing and were selling tickets and merchandise like crazy. You had enough of a sample size to see which markets it wasn't working in and maybe some things that you need to tweak with other markets. You saw some of the rules that were working. The Speaking again with the broadcast, the way the players got it, the access that the players had. There was a lot of things that were go- going right for the XFL. The time of year that the XFL mm-hmm. was playing and obviously that might be shifting with a lot of other sports pushing back their seasons and and things like that. But yeah, if I was a potential purchaser, if I had the capital to invest in the XFL, I would look at this product and say, I think this is something that we could work with. The big thing that they have to be concerned with is that they never had to go head-to-head against the NCAA basketball tournament on TV. And their ratings were going down, but they were still pretty good. But it'd be interesting to see, and unless you have a lot of money and can get started, it'd be interesting to see what sort of ratings they would get. And by the way, maybe one group that should be interested in buying an XFL is Disney or Fox. If, mm. if you're a network, you own the, it's your own programming, right? You just buy programming. Not super expensive. You're going to make money off of it. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Or go in as a partnership. I would love to see Disney do that. Yeah, it wouldn't be a bad idea on their part. Thank you, Michelle. You got it, Randy. That's your Killing Me Smalls on 101 ESPN. Next up, we are going to talk some more hockey with ESPN.com's Emily Kaplan, one of our favorites, is next with Carriker and Smalls. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carriker. Great to have you with us on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. And 
One of the preeminent hockey experts is ESPN.com's Emily Kaplan, who joins us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. And Emily, it's always great to talk to you. Thanks for your time today. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you guys? We're doing well, Emily, and there's there's so many things to get into after Gary Bettman announced in his press conference yesterday that the NHL had taken take step forward to coming back. And uh, first thing I want to start with here is what is your thought on abandoning the regular se- rest of the regular season, just saying, hey, we're going to jump right into the playoffs? Do you think that was a smart move for the NHL? I think so, Michelle. I, I feel like the longer we went without games, the more unreasonable it got. Um, and just to get the Detroit Red Wings, for example, all together to play 12 meaningless games, just was pointless at this point. That said, now that we're talking about potentially beginning in January, that's 10 months potentially without games for these guys on these stigmatized seven or whatever we want to call them. So it's a little bit rough, but this felt like the prudent decision to go forward and include as many teams as possible, but not include the teams that didn't really need to be there. I got to tell you, Emily, even though it's been a while, if uh, St. Louis Blues fans can watch the Red Wings' misery be extended for 12 more games, they would have taken it. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's self-serving. Sure, I'm I'm sure Chicago fans would appreciate it as well. I live in Chicago, but um, those poor Red Wings, can we get them a little bit of a break? (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Hey, uh... One of the things that we talked about earlier is we keep hearing about money, money, money with baseball. We haven't heard peep one about money with hockey. Why is that? And will we hear about it? I don't know if we're going to. And I do think that part of it is the nature of hockey players. They don't really like to talk about themselves, their personal finances. They would find that to be um, making themselves greater than the sport. And that's the antithesis of hockey, right? Um, But one of the things is that they understand NHL is not in great shape, and they're losing $1.2 billion if they can't stage any of these games and can recoup about half of that if they do. And, yes, that's the league's money, but it's also the players' money, and that would be reflected um, in later escrow payments that they'd have to give back, and, and it would reduce their salaries even more. So they understand that by going back there, they're helping themselves for the future, and even though um, maybe it's not ideal um, it is better for the sport. And, and uh, one player I talked to said, you know, what's best for hockey right now is just visibility. Um, we need hockey on the ice for the growth of the sport. And I think that's the mantra that a lot of players are taking right now. Emily, that's amazing because I was talking to Randy in the commercial break and I said, when you look at the way baseball is having this this disagreement publicly, a lot of fans are very turned off by them squabbling about money during these times. With the NBA, they're coming back, but you're having players saying, hey, star players like Damian Lillard saying, I, I might not even play if the games don't matter. In the NHL, you're not hearing things like that from players. You're not hearing things like that from owners. They've been relatively quiet and intentional with the way that they've announced their comeback. And I said to Randy that I never understood why hockey wasn't more popular in America, especially because of the intensity and, and just the tough nature of the playoffs. There's nothing like the NHL playoffs. And so I didn't wonder if ownership and players looked at this from a viability standpoint from the, the entire league and the future of the league and said, hey, the very best part of our league is going to be on display for a country and a sports fan that is desperate to watch sports. And if they're not considering just how this is going to help the sport in general moving forward. 
No, you're absolutely right, Michelle. And, you know, it's not just the NHL that's at stake here. It's hockey in general. You know, I was looking at the USA Hockey membership stats, and over the last two decades, there's only two years where there's been a dip in participation. One was 2004, 2005, and the other was 2012, 2013. Mm. And what are those both years? They're lockout years. And so I talked to USA exec, uh, Hockey Executive Director Pat Kelleher, and he's like, that's absolutely correct. The visibility of the NHL is so important for grassroots hockey, for amateur hockey, for youth hockey. And I do think these players, especially understanding the growth that they still need to have here in America, get that the NHL has this power and, and being on the ice can influence so many young kids who can see these guys on TV and say, hey, I want to play that sport as well. ESPN's Emily Kaplan with us on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. And Emily, you talked to Don Fear yesterday after Gary Bettman made the announcement and uh, your big takeaway, there's a lot that needs to be negotiated. What are the big things that hockey needs to, the, the hurdles that they need to get over before we can get back to getting to training camp? You know, one of the things is health and safety protocols, like the PA and the league figured them out for phase two, which is these voluntary workouts. They haven't talked anything about phase three, which would be training camp, or phase four, which would be um, games. One of the things players voice their opinion on is the need that they wanted to have families with them uh, to travel with them to the bubbles. A lot of veteran players, especially, like, I don't want to be away from my family for that long. Donald Fair said that's still something that needs to be negotiated. And, you know, he thinks it's highly unlikely that guys will go months without seeing their family. But still, it's something that has to come to the table with the NHL. And then there's the issue of testing, which I just find fascinating because throughout this all, the NHL has taken this really ethical approach where it's like we're not going to step in front of the medical community. We're not going to procure tests. Um, where it's not appropriate. And then all of a sudden we hear, okay, if we get to phase two, which is a voluntary training, guys will be tested twice weekly. And then all of a sudden Gary Bettman said yesterday that if we get to games, it's going to be once a day for all players. And we could be talking about twenty-five to 30,000 tests the NHL is using, which is millions of dollars. And he believes with his medical experts and the people he's talking to that tests will be readily available then. But that's a lot of money. And that's a lot of tests that we're talking about. Yeah, it sure is, Emily. An- another aspect of this that Gary Bettman talked about yesterday that affects you know Blues fans here in St. Louis is the way that this is going to be constructed as far as seating is conter- concerned. So the top four teams in each conference in each conference will play separate round robin tournaments to de- determine the seating in the first round. I wonder if you've talked to any members of any of those top four teams in each conference or any players and how they're feeling about that because I think it's kind of torn here. Some people are saying, "Hey, we like the fact that a team like the." Blues could go in and be facing tough teams that don't really have consequences. It's a way to sharpen them up. And then other people are saying, hey, they performed really well during the regular season. They should be rewarded for that in some sort of a seating arrangement. So I'm just curious if you've spoken to anyone that has any negative feelings about the round robin portion of this. Yeah, you know, when the NHLPA's executive board voted on it, it was representative from all 31 teams. There's two teams that didn't like the format. One was the Carolina Hurricanes. They voted against it. And the other is the Tampa Bay Lightning. And they're one of those teams that gets the quote-unquote buy. Um, and Alex Kalorn is their player rep. And he pretty much said, we don't like the fact that teams are going to come in and have to play out from playoff intensity, really. Like, they're going to have a whole series. They're going to be seasoned and ready. And, yes, you know, we'd be playing these round-robin games. And, and it is for seeding, but they're not as meaningful. So um, there was a little bit of pushback from those top teams, but... Ultimately, I do think everyone knows nothing can be perfect in this scenario. 
this is the way that appeases most people. Um, and it also creates a lot of opportunity for chaos, which, again, I think would be good for the sport and visibility. Emily, we know that there are going to be two hub cities. There are a lot of possibilities out there. What is either your, well, what's your informed opinion as to what the cities will be? My informed opinion is that I would be quite surprised if it's not Las Vegas at this point. Uh, the NHL has a long-standing relationship with that city. They know they can house up to 12 teams in one casino hotel. They've gotten us sheets of ice um, in Vegas, you know, despite everybody rolling their eyes that Vegas is in a hockey city. They really have built a bunch of ranks. Um, the NHL also would like to go to Canada um, and pick a Canadian city for a couple of reasons. One, it's just a really Canadian league, and it just feels kind of appropriate, one in the U.S., one in Canada. Two, it's a lot cheaper to stage a game there right now, and the NHL is counting pennies. Um, but one issue the NHL found is that the Canadian government is forcing anyone who crosses the border to quarantine for 14 days. And the NHL pretty much said yesterday, if they don't ease those restrictions, that's going to be a non-starter for us because time is of the essence. So if they don't go to Canada, I would guess it would be either Columbus, Pittsburgh, um, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or Dallas. Uh, that would be my informed opinion. Emily, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time. Hopefully we'll get uh, hockey back sooner rather than later, and we'll be talking again soon. Awesome. Always ch- enjoy chatting to you guys. Have a good one. You too. Take care. That is ESPN's Emily Kaplan on 101 ESPN. Some good info there. Next up, we're going to cross things over with Danny Mac. Scoops with Danny Mac coming up at the top of the hour on 101 ESPN. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs, the crossover on 101 ESPN. One, two, three, four. During the break, we were talking about where uh, we get our hair done. So Danny Mack and I both get our hair done at Hair Saloon for Men. Where men feel comfortable. Yes, we do. <laughs> hair Saloon for Men. I'm very, very uh, happy with Hair Saloon for Men opening back up because uh, I feel like a human again getting my hair cut. I, I was being nicknamed Shaggy at home. I'm telling you, man. And and by the way, um, Michelle, your hair looks delightful. Thank you. After you got it done. So I'm not hitting on you or anything. I'm no. happily married. I'm just sure. trying to be nice about the situation. But yes, once you get your hair done or your nails done in your case, well, I guess there's some guys who get their nails done. A I, lot of guys get their nails done. I don't. But I did get a haircut, and I felt like a uh, human being again. So it was kind of nice. I almost shed a tear in my car after I left the salon. It was just such. <laughs> That's a, what we've gotten to, huh? Yes, it was just such a wonderful, normalizing experience to have someone else cut your hair and yes. to feel like, oh, this is something that I used to do all the time, and well, it was not a big deal. Hold on, so somebody else cut your? What, did you have somebody during quarantine cut your hair? Oh no, 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 no one. We t- just okay. let it grow and get to the texture of straw it was bad it was rough i cut my uh, my youngest i cut his hair oh how did that go well in college i was one of the i was a team barber <laughs> oh yeah so i used to Whoa. cut hair baseball now, team yeah i i wouldn't say it was great but it was serviceable for you know guys that had no money and i was looking for money so i'd get like five bucks a cut or three dollars <laughs> a haircut or something like that and uh, one of the guys on our team could really cut hair i mean he was awesome at it and so i Got the clippers and and did Barrett's hair. And uh, he said I screwed it up, but I don't think I did. I thought it looked pretty good, to be honest with you. Now, I don't really know about guys' haircuts. Is this, are we talking scissors? Are we talking you're buzzing it and fading it? Both. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is a bad process. Just, just, you know, you got to get the levels and cut away. I guarantee it looks great. (laughs) I bet it does. Thank you, Randy. 
Well, it looked better than it was. I know that. He was shaggy. He was very shaggy. <laughs> Over the years, every baseball team seems to have one guy that winds up being a barber for some yeah. of the players. Have the Cardinals, in your experience with the Cardinals, have they had one of those guys that was a haircutter? Usually they bring a guy in. Okay. So a lot of times um, it seems like there's a suit guy every year in spring training. He comes in. He'll fit you for a suit. I don't do it, but the, the players do or personnel will get it uh, fitted. Because, I mean, honestly, they don't have time. Um, You know, dry cleaning, that kind of thing is sent out. Uh, Haircuts are brought in. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, one of the unique things that they've done in the last, like, two years is set up beds. I mean, guys take naps in the clubhouse. So you have actually where the lockers are in the clubhouse. But then you can go down a a hallway and there's beds. Mm. Take a quick nap and catch up on your sleep. That's great. Yeah. We need that here. I do that in the booth. I have a sofa up there, and I, I sleep on yeah, that. You've seen that. I have, yeah. yeah. I, I never, think you've walked in on me when I'm sleeping. I, I, I've walked in while you were laid out on the sofa. I didn't realize you were completely asleep well, because you got up real quickly when I walked in. Well, if a boss was rolling in, <laughs> yes, I've, I've got my lineup card. Here it is. I'm diving into the numbers. I, I promise you I know what's going on. Uh, you're yeah, just right. resting your eyes. I'm, that's what my grandpa used to me say. Me too. Yeah. Just resting my eyes. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So sure. we have a question that we have been discussing here about... Your business, your big business, TV, obviously, this is your big business now because we don't have TV. This is my business, yes. But Michelle and I both agree that it would be advantageous for the NHL to be the first league back because you have the undivided undivided attention, pretty much, of the sports fan, certainly the team sports fan. Would that benefit hockey greatly if they were the only team sport being played? I think it's a benefit for any of these sports. I've been saying that on the show. Um, It's your window to showcase your sport and bring in a casual fan, uh, reintroduce a fan that loved the sport, that just wants to watch live sports. I I think it's a a window to get fans involved. Like, you know, look at NASCAR. Look at the ratings that they're getting. Now, I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I went to it just to watch a live sporting event. Now, to me, it was a lot of guys going fast, making left turns. I get it. Now, I know there's a lot more that goes into it, but... I found it really intriguing, like how they did the broadcast. And I found myself going back to it the last couple of times they've had it. So if you're the first sport out there, I, th- I think it's a great window to to introduce those fans. And as it pertains to baseball, if you don't have baseball at all, that's about 17 or 18 months that you're out of the national landscape of sports. And out of sight is out of mind. When Dan and I were younger broadcasters, when we worked at KMOX, they had an auto racing reporter, an insider, named Walt Glotter. Walt Glotter. And Walt <laughs> believed, and this was he was such a fan, that NASCAR was the most important thing in the entire world. Yes. So he would call that red phone, it would ring, he'd pick up the phone and say, KMOX Sports, he'd say, let's roll. Let's roll. And then, but the thing was, so I did the Saturday nights. And so then I'd have to tape the Sunday night or the Sunday morning thing that would, you know, the race would get over at midnight or whatever. So I'm waiting for the, come on, Walt, just please call, please roll tape. All right, got it. So I roll the tape and he was supposed to only go like 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. He would go five minutes and 30 seconds. And you're sitting there like, Walt, I got Mark McGuire calling in. I need to go and get off this phone. And remember how mad he'd get? I'd cut him off. Yeah. I just cut it. I just, I got to go click. And he would get upset. (laughs) Yes. So Talladega, awesome Bill from Dawsonville comes out on top. (laughs) And then he'd do all the local races too. Yeah. You know, he'd go over to like the, 
the what do they call it? Major racing or major? Yeah. What, oh, he, yeah, all he, that he, stuff. And he watched it. it; was great. So yeah, that uh, that got me into NASCAR. Uh, Bill Elliott was awesome. Bill from Dawsonville. Yeah, that was there was a bunch of bills. Yeah, presented by Budweiser. Yep, <laughs> Budweiser was a proud sponsor of that one. Um, there was also, by the way, do you what? By, do you, what do you guys think about NHL coming back first or NBA or whatever? We, it's a great window, isn't we it? We both agree that if you're the only team sport being played, you're going to get people to watch that wouldn't ordinarily watch. And I'm of the belief, and I think you are too, Michelle, that if people are exposed to hockey, they're going to like it. I I love it. I mean, I you and I used to argue. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. How much time I would put into the NHL? And I used to say, I'm telling you, the NHL's got a chance. Because I was just super glued to the league, and I, mean, I could tell you the fourth line on Edmonton and all that stuff. I mean, I was just into it, and you were like, nope, it's a baseball town. And and you're right. It, it, you know, for the most part, it's a baseball town, but it, it is transitioning though, because of what happened last year of the excitement of the Cup. That brought in a lot of casual fans, too. Um, and the other thing you got to remember, too, is that these sports are going into their prime part of the season. There is nothing like watching the Stanley Cup playoffs. It's, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's great theater. And so that's what they're going into as opposed to being in a regular season. I never understood why hockey wasn't more popular in America because it has everything you want. It has the best playoffs in sports. It has the physical nature. It's fast. It has characters that you, and villains. I, it's just one of those things where I think the way hockey has played this has been so smart to have a lot of this go on behind the scenes and be the first one to come out. And I think if playoff hockey is the first things that a, a sports-starved America gets, there's going to be a lot of people that are on this bandwagon forever. I never thought I'd say this, but Gary Bettman came off looking like a, a great guy yesterday mm-hmm. in terms of, yeah, this is important for our league. It's important for our fans. It's important for the American psyche. Uh, we have gotten along with the players. I mean, remember, this is a guy that it was part of a canceled season. Yeah. And and now, you know, he's looking like, I don't want to say a hero coming out of this, but it's a positive thing. And I think Adam Silver's done the same thing with how he engages with his his primary guys, the players. It's a partnership. And then you read the stuff with baseball yesterday. I, I, look, it's negotiations. I get it. But, man, is it frustrating to hear that stuff as a fan of the sport. It's just it's tough to hear that stuff. It really is. A lot of times people involved in professional sports, whether you're an owner or a player, you, you do sometimes lose your touch with reality, with how the average American sports fan would perceive these negotiations. We just talked to Emily Kaplan of ESPN who said players and and ownership in the NHL, they're all on the same page. They understand the importance that this this return has for the viability of the league. Do you think baseball's considering that at all, of, of how much this could turn off the, the general baseball fan if they don't come back? I, I would hope that that's got to be part of the primary conversation. And yes, I do think they understand that. Now, let's let's make sure we, we throw this out there, too. I mean, the NHL and the NBA... These are highly motivated people to make sure the cap and the money that's made off these postseason games. I mean, that means a lot going forward. So it's not like, hey, they're, you know, these are angels coming out and just saying, oh, we're doing this for the betterment of the the country. I I think that's part of it. But there's still money that's a big part of it, too. But um, I'm worried. I I, I really am. I mean, if they don't play, I'm talking about baseball, um, I'm concerned. I really am concerned about the sport. Again, that's 17 to 18 months of not having baseball, not being having a meaningful game since Game 7 of the World Series last November. And to your question, I do think that they realize that there is an important aspect. Like, 
I'm going to talk about it on the show. This is not 1994, okay, when we had the shutdown. This is not 2002 with a near shutdown of the league. This is a national global pandemic. This is different. This is something that's completely different than that. And that has to be part of the equation of... Look, when we come out of this, we, we need to play. We need to do this not only for the betterment of our sport, and everybody's going to make a little money, maybe. Players definitely will. I mean, you either get zero or you get something. Right. Um, the owners, I guess, would still lose some money with this, but we, I don't know if until they opened up all the books. We don't know what that would look like. But to the big picture of this, it would just be good to get it'd be good to get the sport back so that people could watch it and enjoy it. Well, and they need to because... If you look at the Forbes valuations, and I know you've talked to people with the organization, you've you've talked to more high-level people in baseball than I have, but my understanding is that there are teams out there that, if this happens, will be in trouble. It, oh. It's hard to imagine that a franchise like Miami, a fr- and Tampa Bay, Tampa, Oakland, Oakland, that they wouldn't be in some serious trouble in terms of their future. Well, and I wonder if it ever goes, and I don't know if it would ever get to this point, but it's just I think about all the different scenarios. So you got 40-man roster spots, and if it's presented to the league, the players... Well, you know, we can play and we'll be able to keep these things afloat. If not, there goes 40, 160-40-man roster spots. So it becomes more competition going forward. Um, or you could look at it and say, let's play. And by the way, on the horizon is expansion. And we'd like to yeah. create more jobs for you guys. But we need to keep the viability of the league going forward in a positive manner. I think expansion has got to be on the table because if owners are looking at recouping money, think about the expansion fee that would be yep. for Portland or Vegas or Nashville or wherever you want to you know, throw a team out there and you don't relocate the teams that you have or go to Montreal. Um, that's big, big money back in the coffers of the owners and you're creating jobs. By the way, you're also creating minor league cities and, and affiliates. I mean, minor league baseball looks to be done this year for sure after watching what happened with the Oakland A's last night. I don't know if you saw that, but they're going to stop paying their players. Yeah, You know, so this is a crucial, and I don't know how you guys look at it. I think it's a crucial, certainly week, but 10 days max? Got to get this thing figured out. They do. That was the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.